So essentially, uh, all countries matter is what you're saying, Stephen? I'm saying all countries matter, but some countries matter more than other countries. That's the harsh reality. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good way of putting it, yeah. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy easy to understand and also relevant for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio is an all-star cast from South Dakota State University. We have Stephen Howard. Hey, hey, hey. And our newest contributor, Valida Azamatova. Valida, would you like to introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, definitely. Hi, everybody. So my name is Valida Azamatova. I'm originally from Uzbekistan, and I've completed my bachelor's degree at South Dakota State University in political science. And I've also just recently graduated from Eastern Illinois University with a degree in international relations. Happy to be here. (laughs) Well, we're definitely glad to have you on the show. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. And don't forget to also view Valida's inaugural post about the rejection of westernization in Russia. So it's been a few months since our last podcast, but the start of a new year brings new opportunities. We're going to take a, take this episode to go back to basics and discuss the fundamentals of international relations and foreign policy. Throughout, we'll try to provide examples from current events to help make things a little easier to understand. So I suppose the first question is, what is international relations, and more broadly, what is the, quote, liberal international order that we hear so much about these days? Who wants to start? Well, I could do the liberal international order thing. The liberal international order really is the current framework how nation states think about, well, I should I say nation states, but I should just say states think about the world we live in. So if you were to say the, uh, the liberal international order says this, it basically means the norms that uh, the majority of the international countries play by, they set to this standard and they try to go by this standard. So a country cannot take land from another country. That is basically gone and that's why you have such uh problems with russia taking crimea because that is a very big flaunting of the liberal international order trade is a good thing trade is um all sorts of trade brings everyone together that is one of the core tenets of the liberal international order and that again you have some countries that are saying that well I'm not sure that multilateral trade is a good thing. Maybe bilateral trade, maybe. And so you have a lot of different types of uh, impressions, but it's really just the norms that most countries play by in the world today. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we talk about the liberal international order whenever we start our grad school. It's been in the topic of international relations for a long time. And... Oftentimes, I feel like theorists and a lot of uh, professors, they compare it to political liberalism or economic liberalism, just like Stephen mentioned about trade. 
and some of the challenges that have been recent um, towards liberal international order um, was seen this summer, for example, when um, the Brits voted to leave the European Union last, just last June. And we can even uh, consider the U.S. presidential election this November. I think it's really interesting because my, the topic uh, that I posted this week was regarding Russia and the rejection of westernization, which is actually how I would define the opposition to the liberal international order. Russia has been rejecting it through um, economically, through their politics. We could have, we saw it in uh, its relation to Syria and also in the Ukrainian crisis. And of course, it's been happening culturally as well. So they've been influencing their people um, through TV, mass media, through talk shows. And I think that's one of the challenges that we are seeing right now these days against uh, the liberal international order. Yeah, I guess that's my opinion. <laughs> no, yeah, and I definitely agree with you. The one thing that I would add is that there are, when you talk about when people say, oh, there's a threat to the international, the liberal international order, it's kind yeah. of like a threat to the status quo is really what they're saying. And sure. so it's like you, what you were saying, that the United States electing Donald Trump was a kind of a blow at the international order, liberal international order, because the um, United States was kind of the anchor of the liberal international order. Great Britain leaving the EU was kind of a stab at the norms. It's a stab at the liberal international order. And what Russia is doing and what China is doing and other revisionist powers, those are also definitely challenges to the liberal international order. Because a lot of these countries, uh, you take uh, China, for instance, China's ascendancy really only took place, say, in the last, what, 30 years max? Yeah. And so they don't feel like they had, and it's true, they didn't actually have a say in the creation of this liberal international order. So why should they try to accept these norms, which they had no input in creating? Exactly. And I think it should be um, kind of stressed that liberal international order, so essentially the reason that the United States and Great Britain are considered to be sort of the founders of this liberal international order is because it is that system of how countries interact with each other that basically sprang up after the Second World War. So the United States and Russia essentially, with obviously help from our allies, essentially defeated the forces of global fascism and hyper-nationalism so it created that system where all of these nations are supposed to respect each other's territorial boundaries. They're supposed to trade, for the most part, freely with each other. And yeah, you were right, Stephen, that China wasn't necessarily part of that. I mean, they were to some extent. They got a uh, veto power seat in the United Nations Security Council, but they really didn't quite get a chance to put their input on how this liberal international order was going to go. Of course, it's ironic that China's ascendancy is in part due to the liberal international order and the fact that the United States and many other countries essentially stepped aside and allowed China to grow within this system. If you think throughout history, under any other system, or lack thereof, China or just another ascendant power wouldn't really have had the opportunity to rise the way that China has. You would think that before we had these norms of respecting these other countries, that if the dominant power saw another power rising, they would try to attack it or undermine it with everything they had. Well, we didn't necessarily see that with China. So it's sort of ironic, but at the same time, that is part of the game. If 
what China is wanting to do is to, as you said, Stephen, be a revisionist power, to revise the status quo and to change things. And so things like the election of Trump, who does not appear to like multilateralism or uh, multilateral trade agreements, and Brexit, where the British got rid of or got out of that European Union system, those are all blows to that particular ideology. And so that's the the problem. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily that people are you know being hurt and dying overnight, but it's that these ideas that form this foundation of stability that we've had for so long, they're starting to. It seems like they're starting to erode. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I think something important as well uh, that people sometimes miss is um, the sovereignty of states. Uh, a lot of countries argue um, between the state sovereignty and the liberal national international order. If state sovereignty is an in- essential element of the liberal international order, and some people might even argue that it is its essence, some powers such as China and Russia they might have a point when they argue. That that it's them rather than the Western powers that are defending the principles of their liberal international order by promoting their sovereignty and protecting it. I think another confusion that kind of happens um, when people are discussing this topic is that um, it's not so much about the liberal international order itself, but about different versions of it, and in particular about the way the West is seeing it and trying to change it. For example, Russia seems to want to go back to the order back in from 1945, where different states were living with different ideologies and political systems coexisted, especially territorial sovereignty where when it was important. But the West, for example, is arguing that states should be obedient to liberal principles and foreign policy, that there's this order where countries have to follow. And I think that's where the argument arises between like countries like Russia and China that want to protect their state sovereignty and promote it. And then we have countries like Great Britain and the U.S. that are promoting their liberal order. What do you guys think? Well, I'd actually like to challenge your assumptions on that because – what I see a lot of for Russia and China is I agree with you that they do want to go back to the uh, pre-19 or the mm-hmm. post-1945 order. But that yep. post-1945 order was much more concerned with um, areas of influence that they controlled. So you had everything behind uh, – it didn't happen immediately after World War II, but everything behind the Iron Curtain was the domain of the Soviet Union. Everything in the Eastern Asia area – China sees as the domain of China, and they don't see the United States as really having a place in there. And that's why I think Russia gets a lot of uh, really aggressive when liberal international order starts knocking on Georgia or Ukraine. But I also see that as a, I don't know, a fundamental outgrowth of the liberal international order is the destruction of these zones of influence. So if every state has a right to state sovereignty and every state is equal under international law, in that case, Russia and China do not have zones of influence. They have their own state sovereignty, mm-hmm. but the United States should be just as guaranteed to representation in Ukraine, Georgia, um, the Philippines, uh, North Korea, South Korea, wherever, as those other countries are, even though it might seem like they are encroaching on those 
countries post-1945 zones of influence. I think that these are more revisionist powers because the liberal international order, like you said, is an outgrowth of state sovereignty. And I think that the multipolar order, which the Russia and China and to some extent um, India and Brazil are pursuing, is a direct challenge to individual state sovereignty and more of a pushback to the older times of zones of influence, areas of control, and yes, you have you have state sovereignty, but you also have the sovereignty of the regional hegemon, whoever that might be, whether it be Russia or China. But Stephen, do you think that's sustainable in the long term when we have so many other powers rising up? Is it sustainable to attempt to prevent them from trying to establish some sort of spheres of influence type of scheme? I'm just thinking that, you know, this this is exactly what it would look like if a power wanted to, you know, increase its own influence. But then once it reaches a certain level, kind of revert back to, oh, well, yes, state sovereignty is good and no one should ever interfere on it now that we've reached the level of success that we want to. Don't know if it's sustainable per se or what would be sustainable in those regards. I mean, if you had all states just observe state sovereignty, then I think that, yeah, liberal international order is fine. I think that a modified version of the liberal international order, which, Valida, you're alluding to, and what I think that, to some extent, Russia and China are trying to pursue, mm-hmm. is still partially liberal international order. And I, I don't know what is more sustainable, per se, because... When you had those, and it's spheres of influence, like you said, that's the word I was looking for, but when you had the spheres of influence, you had a lot more great power wars as well, because in that case, you're not just fighting for your country. It's not a state versus state, per se, fight or whatever it might be, competition for influence. You're actually looking to extend your uh, sphere of influence, so that's why Afghanistan had such massive problems for a long time and why uh, Iran had problems for a long time because it was in between the spheres of influence between Russia and uh, the United Kingdom or at that time Great Britain and they were kind of splintered because of that as basically war ground states and you go back to the spheres of influence after uh, Napoleon's rise which led to the Metternich system and that eventually just crippled in, crumpled in on itself because it doesn't allow any states to change their status. So say uh, India is ascendant and China is descendant. Well, China still has this, uh, their area of influence or sphere of influence around that area. So the only way China has or India has to break that sphere of influence is by directly challenging China, and there you get into a, uh, oh, what is it, the Thucydides trap. Basically, if a rising power wants to rise, they have to challenge the existing power, but it leads to a lot of great power wars, and I don't think you have that as much with a state sovereignty-centric system as with a sphere of influence system, because, I mean, it doesn't matter if China's on the rise or if India's on the rise if we're just paying attention to a state-centric system, but if we're paying attention to a spheres of influence system, that is incredibly important. 
Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, I mean, I, you can definitely see the evolution of um, the, the liberal international order through three elements, I think, that are important, which is the security order, the economic order, and the human rights order. In terms of the security order, which is territorial integrity, we can see that um, Russia, for example, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, I mean, the West has expressed outrage that Russia has broken the rules of the European security order. Also, China hasn't been innocent, too, with building um, the South China Sea. Uh, I mean, it's the actions have been more subtle than Russia, of course, but it's it basically amounts to the same thing. It's the acquisition and consolidation of territory by using force and violation of international law. So... These authoritarian states are breaking the rules and therefore they're challenging the liberal international order while the West is trying to uphold it. This is also where, when an argument arises that democracies, um, in, in contrast to authoritarian states, are willing to operate within an open, rule-based international system and to cooperate for mutual gain. I feel like that's the difference between... Um, like countries like China and Russia in the West is that um, they are willing to cooperate only for mutual gain. And this is an ever, this is a never lasting battle between self-interest and mutual gain. Polita, I'm curious, do you, um, how much do you think this is inevitable for say Russia and China? I guess, do you think if we had someone besides Putin who was at the head of the Russian state, if there was someone who was more favorable to the liberal international order? Do you think that they would still attempt to undermine it in these ways? I feel like it's more than just who is in charge of uh, Russia, who is the head of state, because I feel like this is more of a cultural thing. Just like I've explained in my blog post for this week, I've also said that the reason for this rejection of the of westernization and the liberal order is imbued in russian culture where um, masculinity and elements of um, just being the best is imbued in the culture that's why there it doesn't matter who the head of the state is it's still in the people who define the state so i think that it might take a long time for russia to get to that point where they might um, find the internet, the liberal international order in their favor, if that makes sense. Well, I actually have a question for both of you guys about, and Valida, you brought this up, those different uh, aspects of what it is to for the inter liberal international order. So you had state security, you had human rights, and I think you had trade in there. I, yep. For both of you, I've always had a con uh, conflicted conscience with this, that state security or state sovereignty and human rights are completely opposite of each other. So you have like the R2P doctrine, the right to protect doctrine, which came into play after Rwanda, which said never again, if there is going to be a genocidal event in some country, the international order has the right to violate the state sovereignty of that country, go in there and stop the genocide which what do you define as a human rights abuse in that case and i think that can vary country to country and does that mean that any country that has a human rights abuse is fair game to lose its state sovereignty and how does that both of those kind of balance i don't know i i do agree that 
as much as we want to say that, you know, the world should be a loving and just place where if people are committing genocide, then all of the nations through the kindness of their hearts are going to invade that nation and stop the genocide. I mean, that that's all well and good in theory, but like you said, in, in actuality, that causes this serious dilemma where it basically undermines exactly what we're trying to protect. And so that's why I'm not sure that I agree with ideas like right to protect in in practice. In theory, they sound great, but when you start talking about let's get all the countries of the international order together, or at least as many as we can get to agree with us about what a genocide is, what it looks like, and what should be done, and then say we're going to invade a country because of that, that gets into really dicey territory. I agree. I think that it's just like I referred to before, it's the Every country has its own version of how they see human rights or the economy or their own territory. Um, for example, in some cultures, um, something might be considered as a violation, but their country might consider it as their cultural norm. Um, the same might go into, for example, elections. Some elections might be considered illegitimate by the West, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they're not legitimate in that country. They've still gone through the process and people have still voted. So I think that's when a lot of people just confuse it because they're so used to thinking in a more Western way and thinking more in a more liberal way and um, forming opinions based on that. Yeah, I can actually think of one example right offhand. So say kind of as you were talking about with um, elections, if we decide that someone else's election is invalid. Like, say, the example of Iran, where there is a semblance of democracy. People mm -hmm. are allowed to vote, though these candidates are highly vetted by the you know, religious ruling authority. So we would tend to consider that as not quite as legitimate. Someone could say that, well, the system of primaries, where you don't allow certain people to vote in certain elections, say, a liberal or a Democrat, registered Democrat, can't vote in some Republican elections for primaries, someone could, say, in Iran, point to that and say, well, that's not really legitimate then either. And so, like you say, we have these conflicting definitions of what is and is not legitimate when we're talking about political sovereignty or territorial sovereignty. That's a great example. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I definitely agree. But I do think you also need to be careful of the, I don't know, making everything equivocal. So... The human rights record of the Iran is that of China, is that of the United States, because all countries have different cultural norms. And that is, I don't want to say tantamount to accepting the need for abuse around the world, but it is important to realize or to try to set some international norms for those sorts of human rights and for those sorts of election cycles as well. Um, I know that it's really difficult to do, and I'm not sure that it realistically can ever be done. And that's why I have the big problem with it. And that's why I kind of brought it up is that I have a really big problem with trying to make everything equivocal, but I also have a huge problem with the violation of state sovereignty. And so I, I, I hear what both of you guys are saying in that state sovereignty should probably hold supreme due to the cultural changes between different countries but to some extent as well the international system is still a power driven system and whoever is the most powerful is going to determine the cultural norms and the social norms for the world to at least some extent 
and those norms should have to be followed to some extent as well. We shouldn't be able to oppress uh, African Americans in the United States just because, well, that's our that's our cultural history. Or Russia shouldn't be able to go into um, uh, the South, uh, the Dagestan or anywhere like that and commit slaughter just because you know that's we don't understand their culture and iran shouldn't be able to go in and just willy-nilly arrest people off the street and oppress their people to some extent i do agree that they have a fairly democratic system for the um, middle east but it's still not really a representative system per se and i think that we should be able to look at those different systems and kind of justify each one Finally, we turn towards a look at 2018 and provide our predictions on potential hotspots for conflict and crisis throughout the globe. First, and obviously I think the foremost on most Americans and a lot of people around the world's minds right now is going to be North Korea and how the situation between North Korea and the United States plays out. It's going to be interesting because I know they're making a few overtures to South Korea as well now. But I... And I, I hesitate from saying that the rationality or the um, modus vivendi of the North Koreans has changed, but the United States is much more erratic nowadays in terms of they will, we are willing to lash out and do nothing at the same time, which creates an air of instability. And if you don't know if you're going to exist tomorrow, you might try to prevent it, and that. That means who knows what's going to happen with North Korean nukes. But I'd also, I also really do want to see what is going to keep happening with India, which I believe is one of the most underreported countries on Earth, because India is, uh, China is always reported as the most ascendant country on Earth right now. But India is right there with China, and India and China do not have the best of relationships. So how is that competition going to play out? Is India going to India's already creating a blue water fleet with a couple carriers. Are they going to start expanding their influence in the, who knows, maybe the South China Sea? And uh, that is the last area that I'd also like to point out. So it's basically all in the Indo-Asia area. The South China Sea, I think, is also going to be very important, not as a flashpoint per se, but I believe that this will be the year that China either solidifies its grasp on the South China Sea or it kind of starts getting pushback, a major pushback from the United States. The United States under President Trump has been very content to not care about the South China Sea because he doesn't see, or I shouldn't say because he, because our country does not see the importance of why we need to see, keep the South China Sea open and what the massive abrogation of the liberal international order it would be. Yeah, I would also add Turkey to your list. I feel like um, with the attacks happening in Istanbul, more violence will come to the country, especially with the weak political system that's going on right now and economic strain. I feel like Turkey is poised for greater upheaval. I mean, the, there's a lot of conflict going on and the clash, the security is clashing and I'm not really sure how they're 
um, going on in their foreign policy, but internally they're suffering. That's for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with all those, especially um, with regards to the South China Sea. It is frustrating seeing that essentially the administration seems to think that it's not that important when this is the critical moment right now where either we defend the liberal international order in Asia or we essentially abrogate the responsibility. Um, but the one potential hotspot I definitely want to point out is uh, Lebanon. And I think it's partially a holdover from what happened in 2017, where there was some, uh, basically some major drama with the uh, Lebanese Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, who um, it seemed as though he was being pressured to resign by Saudi Arabia. And the issue with Lebanon is that it's a very um, multicultural, multi-religious society. So you have basically a power-sharing agreement in that country with the Sunni, the Shia, and Maronite Christians. And so far, it's been able to more or less survive the turmoil and upheaval that we've seen in Syria and in Iraq and basically throughout most all of the Middle East, and even taking in millions of refugees from those particular conflicts. But when we start seeing nations like Saudi Arabia and assuredly Iran, too, will also... Um, start to meddle in the affairs of that country, given that uh, Hezbollah, which is essentially a Shia militant faction that has a lot of backing from Iran, when we see those two countries start to essentially create a proxy fight in Lebanon, I think we're going to see that as possibly a potential hotspot as well. Yeah, and Ukraine also. I feel like mm. um, with Russia and, um, I mean... Trump's admiration for Vladimir Putin is definitely scaring Kiev, and um, there are even rumors that the United States may decide to scrap the sanctions against Russia. So I feel like um, the United States and EU must press Kiev harder for reforms while using stronger diplomacy with Moscow, including the maintenance of these sanctions, even though Putin might not always follow the rules. And... Um, I feel like the situation in Ukraine is just unsettling and it's becoming more um, unsettling and we don't even know where it's heading. But Russia's tactics, which are the use of force and propaganda and even financial pressures, they're just sending a chilling message across that whole region. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Valida, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. We're looking to post bi-weekly podcasts at the beginning of every other week in 2018, so check back more often for more new content or subscribe to our RSS feed. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Ciao. Bye.